right. Good morning. Good morning. How are we? Good. Yeah. Thank you. Somebody's alive. So I want to know. I want to know who came the farthest in the snow today. Who came the farthest in the snow? How far did you come? Natchez. Okay, we got Natchez. We've got Zilla. Can anybody say they came farther than Zilla? All right, we've got a price for. No, I don't have a price for you, but. You came from, you didn't come from Mexico this morning, though. Uh, let me ask this. Let me ask this. Here, here's another fun question. Who drove here in the smallest car? Who's got the smallest car? Anybody want to? And Anyone? Would you, would you come in? Hyundai Elantra. Anybody can top a Hyundai Elantra. There's a prize coming for that, too. I'm impressed you made it. Uh, see, you wouldn't make it to my house in a Hyundai Elantra. Just, you know. You'd end up down the hill at Albertsons, and that's just the way it works. Um, as, uh, as, let's start out with a, with a word of prayer. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to be here today. We thank you for uh, this text of First Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 12 through 20. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would just go before us. I pray as we um, gather together today, we gather as your people, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you have to share with us today. Lord, as we look at uh, these these Two different testimonies, these testimonies of these men who have shipwrecked their faith. Lord, as we look at the testimony of Paul, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as to, Lord, how we can have a healthy faith like Paul. And, uh, Lord, we just love you and praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So our text today, First uh, Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 20, really we see two different stories in this text, we see uh, the story, um, uh, the testimony of uh, this guy, these two dudes named Hymenius and, and Alexander. And these guys are really, they're just shipwrecking their faith is what, they're, is what, is what Paul says they've done. And uh, we also hear the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We hear of how the gospel has changed Paul and what the gospel has done in Paul's life. And so what I thought we would do today is today's kind of a unique Sunday. We've got a foot of snow outside. And so that means that there are less of us here today. So since we're looking at testimonies in our text day, what I thought we would do is, is just take a minute. And, and I want to see if anybody has a testimony, something that they like to stand up and share. Hey, this is what God has done in my life. This is what God has been revealing to me. Uh, just, hey, this is encouraging. Let's hear some testimonies. Anybody have a testimony they want to share? All right, here we go, Mike. This is Sunday, the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. My name is Mike Harrison. I'm 62 years old. Most of you have uh, been introduced to me in the last three or four weeks when I come to celebration here. Restoration Church, Kevin Diet and I have a history of friendship. I met Kevin at the Union Gospel Mission in 2006. I was a broken-down Vietnam veteran who was uh, hooked on morphine. <clears throat> And I had gone just through a divorce, uh, a nasty divorce with my wife here in Yakima, and lost my family, lost my house, lost everything. So I went to the Union Gospel Mission to seek help and uh, was introduced to a gentleman by the name of uh, Kevin, Pastor Kevin Morse, and Ellery Banks, who is the men's director of the Men's New Life Program. Now, I signed a contract not only with God, but with the Union Gospel Mission to bring my life around and the Lord has blessed me in many ways. I am only one of five gentlemen who have done the first, second, and third year program at the Men's New Life Program at the Union Gospel Mission 
and graduated each year. I not only gave five years of my life as a live-on-site volunteer, but I became an ordained minister in 208. Uh, I am one of the representatives of First Baptist Church. I am the youth director there. And uh, Kevin and I, like I said, have had a friendship when he was running the Madison House. Uh, I'd come and visit. He'd come and visit the mission, and he was an inspiration to me. If it wasn't for God and uh, his mercy, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Thank you for your time. May God bless and hallelujah. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Anyone else want to just share just briefly, hey, here's what God's been doing. Here's just how God's been working in my life. I know it's kind of a daring thing. Are we supposed to do this at church? Yes, we can do this at church. Yes, we can. That's the answer. Anybody else want to just share? You guys are all nervous. Oh, Laura Pachinski, here we go. I've been having car problems for like the last five weeks, six weeks. And um, my car broke down the Friday after, just before spring break, Christmas break, sorry, for Christmas. And a friend came and on the side of the road, tried to fix it. And, and then said, well, it needs more things. And then I kept on putting um, um, whatever, fluid in the car. Okay, I know what it is, but yeah, my brain. And um, since it happened during vacation, um, my friend could borrow, work on my car. I could borrow one of his extra cars, which wouldn't start without being jumped, but at least had a vehicle. Um, and then he kept working on it, working on it. And then I had to borrow my dad's car for a little bit. And then the whole time, I had two different cars to borrow. I did have a vehicle. It wouldn't start. It was frustrating. But I finally got my car back like a few days ago, and then it needed more work. The other um, West Side helped pay for that. But, I mean, the whole time was like it was a perfect time for my friend to have that little section of time to fix my car and then to have other cars to borrow. I mean, the whole thing worked out so perfectly. I still owe money on the car, but, but it worked out. It was just the timing. I didn't have to drive to Wapato every day for subbing because it was Christmas vacation. I mean, just, just the whole thing was just God ordained. So it was just lovely to see his provi- providing. That is exciting. That's encouraging to hear how God works. You know, I, I'm curious, you know, I, I see a hand up here. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, we had all these women that went to this if gathering yesterday, you know, and I'd really love to hear some of the women share, hey, this is how God spoke to me at the if gathering, right? Right? Does that put any pressure on anybody? It does put pressure on people. <laughs> um, this, I think the if gathering just kind of has to sink in. Yeah. I don't know if others feel like <laughs> that. I've just... My poor husband here has been listening to me nonstop talk about um, the if gathering. But I, I want to share something more personal. Um, a few weeks back, you met my daughter. She um, came and she spoke about her work in Guatemala. Um, and she's a missionary there. Gosh, I didn't know I was going to get emotional. Um, but as a mother... With a daughter so far away, there's really not a lot you can do. Um, you can talk with her, you can support her, but if she gets sick, there's nobody there to go and make chicken soup for her or do any of those little little things. God, when she came here, um, she visited us, and um, there were instances where I saw, I saw. God, like, part the way for her um, with, it just, 
little, little things. And, and I sat there and I just noticed his, his fatherly care for my daughter. And even to the point where, um, I'll just sum up with this one, one more little example that, um, she had to move off base. God has blessed them. They are fully staffed in Guatemala. And because of that, they moved the single women off base. Well, she's there with one other girl in this brand new house. And basically, she's, she's almost by herself, which that's kind of hard for her. And so what did he do? He provided a temporary kitty for her. I mean, just, and I'm sharing that because God cares about even the little, little things in our lives. And um, I'm just thankful that he has shown me that he, um, he provides for her. I don't have to. That's, that's exciting. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thank you. All right. Any, anyone else want to speak now? Oh, there's, there's one. Oh, we've got three all of a sudden. Here, we'll start right here. Danny Bullard. God has been working in my life the last several years. It started when I read the series Left Behind and uh, made me realize that if I was one of those left behind, how would I witness to those people that I knew for definitely for sure were going to hell, which they are. And at, at the time I started that series, I was always concerned that I might offend somebody if I witnessed to them. And through this series, I finally realized that the world doesn't give a rip if they, they offend me. I can turn on the TV any day of the week and be offended, and they could care less. And uh, so it made me realize that I shouldn't really care, other than the fact that I should love the person. You know, we should always love, love the sinner. Don't love their sin, but love the sinner. And uh, that that's, was where God started with me. And at this time, God is working with me on who he really is. I've uh, read some of the older literature and realized that some of the older writers really knew who God was and really had a reverence for him and really loved him. Uh, so many of us today... Uh, even even good Christians sometimes think of God as being the genie in the box. You rub the box with prayer. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, do this for me. God, do that for me. He's He's not the genie in the box. He is the ruler of the whole inner universe. He's the creator of the whole universe. He He deserves a lot more respect than than we give him. Uh, and I'm trying to learn that. That's who he really is, and remember it. I, from time to time, I realize it, but I don't remember it, so I'm trying to remember that he is the ruler and the creator of the universe, and he deserves a lot more respect than I give him. And uh, it's God is, is very gracious to us. I have a sign hanging above my desk that says, God answers prayer in three ways. He says, no, gives you something better says wait and gives you the very best. Uh, that was the third one. Um, oh, the third one is he says yes and gives you what you want. So 
He does answer in three ways. He's so gracious to us. Um, I'll just give a short testimony about our IF gathering this weekend. It was amazing. And um, to testify to God's faithfulness, um, it might have seemed like we had it all together, but really we it was kind of a minute-by-minute, day-by-day process because it was the first time that an event like this has been, um, has been done. So... Uh, we just stepped out in faith and said, yes, we, we are hungry women, and we want to reach our generation uh, for Christ, and we'll do whatever it takes. So a bunch of women gathered in my home yesterday, lots of women, um, lots of food, lots of, um, lots of great spirit. And I think God just revealed to us that, that we have uh, access to his throne and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has a job for us to do. And everything that we want to do, he will fully equip us to do it. And we just, we left there, um, like Kelly said, it's kind of sinking in. Um, but we left there so full of uh, what he had for us that, that we all just kind of locked arms and praised him for everything that he did. So thanks for everybody's prayers. It was awesome. Thank you, Kathy. Um, well, I was furiously taking notes during the IF conference and then also notes on the music because, you know, I'm always looking for new songs. So it was fun to sing with the ladies and just get to know each other better. But um, one lady named Jen Hatmaker, which is one of my favorites because she's truly silly, um, she talked about how the cost of discipleship and how there's a breaking of us and a pouring out and that discipleship costs. It costs to follow Jesus. And she said it becomes when we start ministering to people that at first it becomes a um, us and them, and then it becomes a we, like we join with them, and their pain is our pain. And I thought that was really um, profound. And um, basically, we just talked about the love of God and how we don't have to have measuring sticks when we are dealing with people, and we don't need to just say, well, I'm better than you because of this, or we just um, dwell on the love of God. And once we're loved by God, we can't help but love others. So it was a good reminder. And thank you, Kathy, for having us. And it was just a lot of fun. All right. So you say, was that planned this morning? Actually, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, it was uh, hey, let's do something unique because uh, it's kind of a unique Sunday. You know, my wife was going to give a testimony, but all she had to say was she was thankful for me. So uh, I'll say that for her. Uh, just kidding. She didn't say that. She did not say that. And uh, so uh, as we look at this text today, it's really about these testimonies, which is why it's kind of fun to start our time together and say, here's here's what God is doing. And here's here's how God is moving. Um, As we begin to look at this text, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in first Timothy chapter uh, one, verses 12 through 20. Um, Nate read it earlier, so we aren't going to read it right now. But it's, it's really interesting because we see these two testimonies and we see two examples of lives that we can follow. We can follow the, the example of, of Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two guys that Paul says they have shipwrecked their faith. Or we can follow the example of Paul. And Paul goes and he shares, hey, this is who I was. This is what God has done in my life. And this is where I am now. And so really, we have the opportunity to look at these two testimonies and say, which of these stories... 
do we want to follow? Which of these stories do we want to be said of our lives? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to start out looking at these stories. I want to look first at uh, Hymenius and Alexander. I want to start and look first at their story and say, God, let's see what we can from there. Uh, then we'll go and look at, at the beginning of the text. So, so, if you, so look at verse 18 with me. Look at verse 18 with me. Paul says this. Paul says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in, the, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, see, if you remember where we were last week, what we discussed last week uh, in the first part of this chapter one, Paul was challenging Timothy. Paul was saying, hey, Timothy, you need to remain there in Ephesus. You need to stand firm. You need to hold your ground. You need to be willing to draw some lines. You need to be willing to stand up against the false teachers that are teaching the false doctrines. And, and, and so, so now Paul is speaking even more passionately than before. He's, he's saying, hey, Timothy, you need to stand up and you need to fight. He said, Timothy, it is, it is time to get ready for war because that looks like what needs to happen. Timothy, he says, Timothy, you've been entrusted. Timothy, we laid hands on your head and we prayed over you and we commissioned you and we sent you out to lead and to protect this church. And now, Timothy, now it's time to fight. Believe it or not, it is okay for us to fight. It's okay for us to stand up for what is right. Throughout the Bible, we see, we see that Christianity is oftentimes compared to a fight or a struggle or, or even a competition. And, and, and you'll see that there is a military imagery used in the, in the life of a Christian. And so as Christians, we are to fight. The reality is the world is against us. The reality is our own flesh is against us. We have an enemy named Satan who is against us. And we have to be willing to fight. We have to be willing to fight. Paul continues in verses 19 and 20. He says, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hamidius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I mean, this sounds pretty serious here. Paul says you've got these two dudes, Hamidius and Alexander, and, and they've gotten good teaching. They had good teaching at some point. They could have been under, uh, they could have been in the church when Paul was, was planning the church 10 years prior. We don't really know, but we know that at some point they had solid teaching. They'd been taught the truth, but eventually at some point they'd rejected it. They'd rejected the truth that was taught to them. They rejected the, the, the sound doctrine. And Paul says because of that, they've shipwrecked their faith. You know, I, I don't think there's any better word picture for, for these guys other than a shipwreck. You see, a shipwreck is a tragic and terrible thing. That's where everything on board, every person on board, dies a slow and painful death of one sort or another. So Paul calls these two, these two dudes out and he says they have shipwrecked their faith by rejecting the truth. And now Paul says he's going to hand them over to Satan. He's going to relinquish these men. They, they've been warned. They've been cautioned. And, and they've chosen anyways to reject the truth. And now Paul was removing any sort of association with them. And we read this and we think, you know, that sounds pretty severe, right? I mean, it sounds pretty drastic. Maybe it's overkill a little bit, right? Well, yeah, it's severe. And it sucks. 
But Paul says, I've got to relinquish association with them because they're rejecting the truth and they're promoting a false doctrine. I mean, this is a drastic step. Absolutely. Does it suck? Absolutely. Is it, does it need to happen? Absolutely. See, Paul does this not out of punishment. The goal is not to punish Hymenaeus and Alexander by removing them from the church. No. Uh, uh, look what Paul says. He says, so they learn not to blaspheme. This step is taken for correction. The purpose isn't to punish them. The purpose is to correct them. So, so if we look at these two stories, we look at these two dudes and we say, you know, this is an example. Anybody want to follow their example? Anybody think this sounds like a good thing? I mean, I'm not sure any one of us would say, yeah, I want to follow and I want to end up like Himenius or Alexander. I want to be just like them. I think we could look and we could say, you know, these guys that have made a shipwreck of their faith, I don't think any of us want to go there. And so, and so what I find interesting about this passage is you see the story of Hymenaeus and Alexander, and you see them shipwrecking their faith. But before Paul tells us about Hymenaeus and Alexander, he shares his own testimony. He shares what God has done in his life. And I think there are things that we can learn about Paul's life that would help us to have that kind of a strong faith. That can help us, and we, we would all say, we don't want to shipwreck our faith. We don't want to shipwreck our lives. So what I want to do is I'm going to look at Paul's testimony, and I want to see what are the keys to, to Paul's strong faith. There are five things to point out. So, so let's look at, start at verse 12. Look back at verse 12, and it says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service. Paul says here, Paul says, here's who I am today. Paul says, I'm a pastor. Paul says, I'm a missionary. I'm a church planter. I'm an apostle. I'm a guy who is appointed by God to be in God's service. To be appointed means to be called or to be directed. And Paul says he is called by God to be his servant. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses this word. He says, I've been called to serve God. I mean, haven't we studied in the past two weeks? Don't we understand that Paul is an apostle? I mean, isn't that kind of a big deal? I mean, I would think that's kind of a big deal. And so I find it interesting that Paul says he was called to serve God. Because I'm not sure anybody aspires to be a servant. Right? I mean, we've got a high school counselor here. I don't think anybody at career day says, hey, I want to go and I want to just be a servant. I want to go and serve God people. I don't think anybody really has those kind of aspirations. I mean, in our culture, we don't look at the service industry with much honor or respect. I mean, the service industry is all based on paying people to serve you or paying people to serve so you don't have to serve other people yourself. I mean, is that what the service industry is all about? And honestly, most of us would, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we're going to admit that, that, that we dream of making enough money to where we can pay more people to do more things for us, to do more things for us, do more things for our families. So we don't have to do those things to serve our families. But the Bible speaks very differently on this idea of, of service and being a servant. People who serve in the Bible are, 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 have a high place of honor. In fact, Jesus even says, Jesus says, I came not to serve, not, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus describes his whole ministry as service. 
This is why the Bible says things like, like, like God uh, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is why God takes humble people, people who are just serving faithfully, and he lifts them up into positions of leadership and influence because they aren't in it for the power. And this is Paul. He's not hungry for power. He's just faithfully serving God wherever God is going to take him. And so this leads to point number one. If we are going to have a strong faith like Paul, we need to realize that we are all called to serve God. Every one of us, we are called to serve God. Let me ask you a question. Where has God called you? Where has God appointed you? God has called every one of us to something. He has given us experiences and talents and skills and and life circumstances. And all of these things, they shape us and they make us who we are. And then God takes that and he appoints each of us to do something. Let me tell you, if God has given you children, if God has given you kids, it's because God's appointed for you to raise them. If God's given you a spouse, it's because God has appointed you to love them and to serve them. If God has put you here at this church, it's because he wants you to help grow this spiritual family. He wants you to serve this church, the people right here. God God has brought friends and family into your life, and he's called us to love and and to serve them and to look after them and to speak the truth to them. We're all called to something. Paul says he was appointed to God's service. So who is it that we're serving? In your church, outside of the church, in your home, in your school, in your workplace, in your place of recreation, where do you actually serve? See, if you're not serving, you're not doing what God has called us to do. When Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. But then he said the second commandment is like the verse, and he said, love your neighbors as yourself. See, when Jesus said love your neighbors, he's not talking about having some warm, fuzzy feelings for your neighbors. You see, if I can, if I can pull this from DC talk, love is a verb. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is what we do. It's serving. It's pouring ourselves out. It's contributing to the welfare of those around us. For you, it might be working in kids' ministry. It might be making meals for new moms or sick families so they don't have to worry about dinner every night for a little bit of time as they're, as they're dealing with the circumstances. It might be, it might be leading a, a Bible study. It might be, it might be uh, you're a person of prayer. And you make it your, your way of serving by praying for people. It might, be, it might be serving at Martin Luther King Elementary and helping us do ministry there at the school. I don't know where God has called you to serve, but I do know that God has called every one of us to serve. So the question is, where are you serving? Paul, look back at verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. See, sometimes we have this perverted view of Christianity. We have this perverted view of Christianity where we understand we're saved by grace, right? And we all get that. We can all say, yes, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We get that. But the problem is, is once we get that, then we think, hey, now I'm a Christian. Now I have to work my butt off to keep God happy, right? 
I mean, isn't that kind of the way our, our Christianity goes? Is, is we have this idea, this perverted view, that once I'm a Christian, I've got to work and work and work just to keep God happy so he's pleased with me now that I'm a Christian, right? That's not true. See, Paul is saying that we are saved by grace. And Paul here, he's saying also that we are empowered by his grace. I mean, do you ever look at where God has called you and become filled with fear? Holy cow, God, this is what I'm supposed to do? I don't know what I'm doing here. Let me tell you, let me tell you, God's called me to lead this church. And, and if I'm just going to be honest, I'm going to say it's something that keeps me up at night. It's something that fills me with fear because I realize I don't have the goods to do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm, I, I'm not all that eloquent. I'm not all that creative. I'm not all that insightful. And I look and I say, God, I can't do this. I've got five kids at home. That's, a, that's our own little basketball team. And, 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 and I love them to death, but I don't know what I'm doing as a dad. I mean, these poor kids, if it was all up to me, man, these kids would be on TV for all the terrible things that they do. I mean, that's, that's, that's who I am. That's, that's what they're bound for because of me. And, and, and I've, got a, I've got an amazing wife. But you know, if it all depended on me, she would have left me a long time ago. You see, I don't have the ability within me to do this. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, I praise God because he has given me strength to be faithful. See, the ability to do these things doesn't come from within ourselves. The ability for me to be a pastor, the ability for me to raise kids that are, are good kids, the ability for me to be a husband doesn't come from within myself. It comes from God's power enabling me, God's grace enabling me, God's strength giving me the strength to do this. See, it is God's grace that enables us to become a Christian. And it is God's grace that appoints us to a service. And it's his grace that enables us to serve him faithfully wherever we're called to serve. I mean, if it wasn't for God, I couldn't be the things that I am. I couldn't accomplish any kind of good work if it wasn't for God's grace enabling me to do it. And this is what Paul is saying to us. He's saying, I'm a guy that has been called by God to do something, and I do it with joy, and I do it with courage, because this same God who gives me is going to give me strength to accomplish it. And wherever God has called you, he will give you the tools to accomplish it. You know, we have this idea, you know, and we, we, where we say, you know, I will serve God, you know, when I become more mature. I will serve God when I get a little bit stronger in the faith. Or, or I'll serve God as soon as I get the necessary skills for me to do what God has called me to do. But God's enabling grace won't show up until you need it. I mean, the truth is, the truth is, are we ever fully ready to, to serve God? Are we ever fully ready to say, okay, now I'm, now I'm ready, God. Now I've got enough skills. Now I can go in to serve you. The question, are we ever ready? You know, Marriage, before you get married, how many of you guys, you read books on marriage? Maybe you went to marriage counseling. Maybe you did some different things and, and pre-marriage counseling. I mean, these are good things. But are you ever ready for marriage? I mean, I mean, the reality is you go and you read these books and you do this counseling and then you get married. And then you realize, holy cow, I'm not ready for this. There's so many more things I've got to learn. There's so many more things that I've got to process. And, and, and are you ever really ready for it? As a dad... You know, I don't think, are you ever ready to be a dad? 
I mean, I keep looking for this instruction manual that says this is the perfect way to raise kids. And the reality is, I don't think that, that I was ever, I don't think any of us are really ready to be parents. I don't care if you wait till you're 35 or, or you wait till you're 22. Are you ever really ready to be a parent? Like Paul, we praise God for strength. We praise God for the ability because in the moment, in that moment, God shows up and he leads us and he strengthens us. I mean, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, hey, I, I've been called by God to do this. And it's not because I'm so great. It's not because I have all the skills. It's because God enables me to do it. God gives grace. God gives strength that allows me to do these things. I mean, we see this in the life of Restoration Church, right? I mean, how many of us were, were, were thrown into this church plant in April of 2013? And how many of us really knew what we were doing? And we showed up here the first Sunday, and how many of us really had it all figured out? Anybody? I mean, we're, we're nine months old now. Anybody got it figured out now? A little bit. We're still, le- we're still learning. We're still figuring things out. I mean, I mean, at that point that we step and we say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to serve you. That's when God's grace enables. That's when God's grace shows up and gives us what we need. So what Paul is going to do now is, is, he says in verse 12, he says, this is my calling. This is what I've been called to do. I've been called to serve God. Uh, but then and now in verse 13, he says, let me tell you just how unlikely and how undeserving it is that Paul has been called to be in that position. Look what he says, verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a, pu- a persecutor, an insolent opponent. An insolent opponent means he was shameless. He was rude. He was disrespectful. If, if I were to translate that word, I'd call him an idiot. So, so Paul is a blasphemer, a persecutor, and he's just a flippant idiot. And, and, and so Paul is describing his life prior to meeting Jesus. And notice, there's no victim language here. He's not trying to make it sound better. He says, playing, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was an insolent opponent. But here he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Now, I don't know how you read that, but when I first read that, I acted ignorantly and unbelief. I thought, is he kind of excusing his sin here? And I want to clarify, he's not excusing his sin at all. We can read and we can say, hey, it sounds like Paul is excusing him being a blasphemer and him being a, a persecutor. But that's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is he's saying ignorance and unbelief actually go hand in hand. Ignorance and unbelief go hand in hand. Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, when I was a persecutor, when I was a blasphemer, I didn't know any better. I, I still was an unbeliever. I, I, I was still without the grace and mercy of Christ. I was still thinking that my religion would save me. See, what's great about this is Paul has gone and he's named his sin. He said, yeah, he said, yeah, this is me. I was a persecutor. I was a murderer. I was a blasphemer. He's confessing his sin. He is clearly naming his sin. Persecutor, blasphemer, idiot. See, number two for us this morning, if we are going to live the life that God has appointed us to, if we are going to not shipwreck our faith, we have to continually confess our sin. We have to continually confess our sin. Because what is this sin like for us? Why is it that we have such a hard time naming our sin? 
I mean, we want to talk about confessing. We, we have this generic confession. Yeah, God, you know, I, I, I sinned a little bit this week, and, you know, forgive me for that. There's my confession. But what about the confession that we see from Paul? Paul says, no, uh, it's not just generic. Oh, I sinned this week. No, Paul says, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, idiot, violent man. This is who I was. I was a murderer. But us, and we justify our sin. We make excuses for our sin. We downplay our sin. We play the victim card. We say, well, you know, I'm not really a liar. I just, you know, I just manipulate the truth a little bit. You know, we say, we say, well, I don't have a problem with, with, with authority. I don't have a problem with respecting authority. I mean, I mean, it's just because all the people in authority, you know, they, they abuse their authority. And so, you know, I just don't have to listen to those people if I believe that they abuse their authority. I don't have to listen to their authority. You know, we excuse our sin and we say, well, no, I don't have, a, I don't have an anger problem. I don't have an anger problem. I mean, if you would just stop pushing my buttons all the time, I wouldn't get angry. And, and we have all these excuses that we justify our sin. We say things, well, well, I can't help if I gossip. I was, I was raised like this. It's not my fault. Paul says, name your sin. Name your sin. What is your sin? Not your symptom. What is the cause of your sin? What is your sin? Can we say like Paul, well, I'm the alcoholic. Well, I'm the pornographer. Well, I am the guy that can't control his temper. I'm the guy that drops more F-bombs than anybody else in, in, in the house. Can we name our sin? Can we confess our sin? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, this is, why, this is who I used to be. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an ignorant idiot acting in unbelief. But look at what Paul says in verse 14. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, despite who I was, God has been good to me. His grace is so overwhelming that it's like an overflow that just spills over. See, when God involves himself in our lives, he shows up abundantly to the point that his grace overwhelms us and we can't contain it. Have you experienced that overflow of God's grace? Are you in need of that overflow of God's grace this morning? Number three for us, to prevent shipwrecking our faith. To have that strong faith that, t- that, that Paul is sharing we need to receive the overflowing grace and forgiveness that's offered through Jesus. And this is the greatest news for us. That God's grace never stops flowing. We can't contain it within ourselves. No matter what you're experiencing today, no matter what your week has been like, no matter what's happened uh, in your life, no matter what's happened in your family, no matter what pressures you feel, no matter the failures you've had this week, God's overflowing grace is available to you today. God's overflowing grace is available to you every day. Praise God for that. Paul says in verse 15, he carries the same idea. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. You know why Jesus came? I mean, there's so many people that have different ideas of why Jesus came to the earth. And you'll hear, you'll hear pastors and you'll hear people say, well, Jesus came into the earth to be a good teacher. That's the reason why Jesus came. 
Oh, yes, Jesus is a good teacher. That's not why he came. Other people will say, well, well, Jesus came to be our example of of living a victorious life. And and, and he's our example. and We're supposed to follow him. Well, yes, Jesus is a wonderful example. But that's not why he came. Well, I know why Jesus came. Jesus came to, to fill us with power and to give us power to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, Jesus does that, but that's not why he came. Paul says he came for one reason. He had one mission and one purpose, to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Is this the Jesus that you know? The one that saves sinners? See, Jesus lived a life in our place. Our lives are full of sin. His life, no sin. And, 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 and Jesus came and, and then he died in our place. And, and, and you know what the penalty for our sin is? It's death. Our penalty for sin is death. And so when Jesus died, all of our sin was placed upon him. And he was punished. He suffered. And, and he died in our place. And after Jesus died, they placed him in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell. So that we don't have to be mastered by our sin. So that we can be free and that we can belong to Jesus. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he accomplished the exact mission for which he came for. To save sinners. To, to give us freedom. To give us forgiveness. To give us the overflowing grace. You know, someone said to me a while ago, they said, Kevin, you preach the gospel every week. Every time I come to church, you always come back to the gospel. Good observation. It's a great observation. You see, when I come home from night, when I come home from work at night, what happens is I come in the door and my two youngest kids come running up to me. And they want to be the first one to come home and say, Daddy, we love you. We miss you. They want to give me a hug. You know, that never grows old on me. I never get tired of that. My wife, you know, when we got married, you know, the night we got married, she says, you know, Kevin, I love you and I'm proud of you. But you know, I still love hearing that today. I value the opportunities to hear that. We should never get to the place where the gospel is just old news. We should never get to the place where the gospel is just this introductory doctrine. But now that we've got the gospel, now we can go to deeper theological waters. I mean, we should never get to the place that the gospel is just old news. You see, it's always good news because we still sin. It's always good news because we still need grace. It's always good news because we still need forgiveness. We still need his grace. We still need his forgiveness. This never becomes old news. This is why we come back to it week after week. Because we need this. We need this grace. And Paul says here, he says, I came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Doesn't that sound like a little bit poor Paul? Poor pity party Paul. Paul, you've got this low self-esteem. I'm the foremost of sinners. Maybe, maybe if Paul listened to some of the TV preachers that, that, that would tell him, if you just think highly of yourself, if you just think positively, if you just have confidence in yourself, then Paul, then you can achieve great things. But the truth is, we should all see ourselves as Paul sees himself. I wish that we would all make the same evaluation of ourselves as what Paul makes about himself. Because 
truthfully, our hope isn't in ourselves. Our hope for salvation, our hope in the present, our hope in the future, none of that hope should be in ourselves. And Paul says, I'm, I'm the foremost of sinners. It's a reminder, hey, I don't have anything to bring to the table. There's nothing I've done that gives me hope. It's all because of Jesus that I have any hope at all. So Paul is saying here, yeah, I'm the foremost of sinners. He, he, he's not doing this to have a pity party on himself, but rather he's expressing humility. He's expressing honesty. And that by placing his hope not in himself, but in Jesus, God then enables him to receive the strengthening grace and that gives him the confidence in the present and in the future. See, the only way for us to live our life and to have that healthy faith is to confess our sin, to understand that Jesus has saved us, and realize that apart from Jesus, your identity is nothing more than a bad, wicked sinner. Did you hear that? Your identity apart from Jesus is nothing more than a bad and wicked sinner. See, number four for us this morning is when we realize that we are nothing but a bad and wicked sinner. We realize that we place our hope in God and not ourselves. Our hope lies in God and not in ourselves. Paul continues that same thing in verse 16. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full repentance, acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul's saying, I know why God saved me. I know why God saved me. I'm the poster child for hope. Because if God could save me, then there's hope for everybody else. You know, what's funny is, is sometimes what we do is we compare ourselves with people who we know are more pathetic than ourselves. This is what we do. In high school, in high school, I had this one friend, and, and, and he, was, he was really a doofus. And the reason I hung out with him is because I felt good being around him. You know, he, he couldn't tie his shoes. He couldn't dress halfway. He couldn't throw himself together. You know, and, and I felt good being around him because he was, don't laugh at me. You do the same thing. We, 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 we begin looking at people around us and we say, you know, I'm better than that person. I mean, I suck, but at least I don't suck as bad as that person, right? <laughs> Paul's saying here, he's saying, I'm the kind of guy that everybody can compare themselves to. Someone might say, well, I have a drinking problem. I've got, I've, I've, got, I've got a porn problem. I've got a gossip problem. I've got this, this foul mouth problem. And Paul says, well, I was a terrorist. I murdered Christians. And we look at Paul and we say, you know what? If God can save that, if God can save Paul, the terrorist, the murderer, the blasphemer. If, if God, if God can, can, can change his life, then maybe there's hope for me and my problem. When you look at a guy like Paul, you realize that God can love, save, and forgive anyone. Verse 17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here in verse 17, Paul, he's gone and he's shared his testimony. He said, this is, this is my story. I've been called by God to serve him. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent idiot. But then God's overflowing grace came. And his forgiveness came. And it filled me up to that I couldn't contain it within myself. And now I realize that my hope doesn't come from myself. 
because I don't bring anything to the table. My hope comes in Christ. And now Paul comes to this verse 17 and offers this verse of praise. See, number five for us this morning, if we're going to have the same kind of faith as Paul, we need to live a life of godly praise. Praising and worshiping God puts a focus on God and not on ourselves. It puts a focus on God and not on ourselves. I mean, this praising and worship should be the natural result from an encounter with the gospel. And when we come to the gospel, we come, we come face to face with our depravity and our sinfulness. We come face to face with, with Jesus and the cross and the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the hope that Jesus offers. Shouldn't this result naturally in our praise and our worship? Shouldn't this result naturally in exactly what Paul is doing here in verse 17? He's saying, this is who I was. This is, this is what Christ has done for me. And now I have no other choice but to give God glory and praise right now. This should move us out of despair and out of pride into full surrender and worship of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the immortal, the invisible, the one true God. You know, another question that somebody said, they said, Kevin, why does Restoration do so many songs at the end of the service? I mean, it'd be really convenient if we could just do one song and then we could leave and go get lunch. Well, I'll tell you why we do more songs at the end of the service. As we study God's word together, it should result in something in our hearts and in our lives. Just as what Paul has done. Paul has shared a testimony. He said, this is, this is what God has done in my life. And now I have no other choice but to respond and to praise God for who he is. You see, as we hear God's word, as we study God's word, it should do something in our hearts. It should do something in our lives. It should bring about repentance. It should bring about confession. It should bring about praise and worship because God is who he is and because of what he has done for each and every one of us. So why do we spend so much time at the end of the service worshiping and praising? It's because we want to respond to what God has done for us. We want to respond to who he is. So this is Paul's testimony of how we can prevent shipwrecking our faith. This is the story of what the gospel has done in Paul's life. The gospel has changed him from a terrorist to an apostle. From a murderer to a pastor. From a blasphemer to a servant. I want to bring our time to a close this morning. And by the worship team to come forward. And as they're coming forward, I want to invite you this morning to respond with me to God's word. As we said, there are two stories, two testimonies, two examples that we can follow. The first was from Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they heard the truth. They heard the truth, but they rejected it. They rejected it. They said, you know, I hear that. I hear what you're saying, but you know, I'm going to do things my own way. And I'm going to not listen to what's right. And I'm going to reject that. And I'm going to do my own thing. And Paul says, we've got to relinquish them. But then Paul says, let me tell you another story. We hear the story of what the gospel has done in Paul's life. We see what, what he has done. God called him to serve him. Paul confessed his sin. And God's overwhelming grace God's overwhelming forgiveness overwhelms him.
to the point that, that he realizes what Jesus has done for him, and he realizes his hope isn't in Paul anymore. His hope is now only in Jesus Christ. And that, that results in our praise and our worship for who he is. As we said, coming to face-to-face with Jesus, coming face-to-face with the gospel, coming face-to-face with our sinfulness, it should result in response for us. So I invite you this morning to respond however you need to. Respond however you need to. If you need to close your eyes and spend time with God in prayer, seeking and pleading and repenting and wrestling, please do that. Please take your time to pray and to wrestle with God. Responding for you this morning is to praise Him. I invite you to join the worship team as we sing praise and worship to God our King this morning. I also want you to, invi- I also want to invite you this morning to respond to God this morning through communion. Jesus instituted this practice of communion on the night He was betrayed. He described the broken bread as representing His body broken on the cross for our sin. And the cup relevant representing a new covenant established by God and his people through the shedding of Christ's blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The Apostle Paul described communion as an act of worship, a way in which we remember Jesus and his sacrificial death for us. Now as an act of worship, as an act of worship, Paul instructs us that we are to examine our lives for sin and to confess that sin before him before we partake in communion. So I encourage you this morning, spend time in prayer with God before you come up here to take the elements. Spend some time communing with God. And after you've examined your own heart and spent time between you and the Lord, I invite you to come forward to either side of the the stage up here. And, and, And you're welcome to grab the elements. We don't take them all together as a group, so take your time. When you're ready, come forward and, and respond to God through remembering what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I love this church. I love these people. I love that you've called me to lead and to serve. God, I'm learning what it means, and, and I'm, I'm being obedient to what you've called us to do. And God, I look at these people and I say, God, help each and every one of us so we don't shipwreck our faith. Help us to remain faithful to you. Help us to have that strong faith, that, that, that solid faith, that, that, that Paul shows the, the testimony of. God, help us to follow Paul's example and not the example of Hamidius and Alexander. God, I pray for every one of us in here that your spirit would enable us at every step of the way. That you would remind us that you've called us to serve. You've appointed us to, to be your servants. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would remind us of our sin, that we would confess it before you. That we would name our sin. Not just this generic, but we would name it before you so that you can remove it and we can move past it. God, and I pray at the moment that we confess who we are, that your grace and forgiveness would overflow us. That it couldn't be contained within ourselves. That we would see that our hope isn't in ourselves, but it's in you. And that would result in a life of praise and worship. God, I thank you that you sent your son to save sinners. And that is every one of us. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We ask this in your name. Amen.